The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Good morning. I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And as you do that, let me say just a couple of things by way of preparation. One is, I'm pretty confident that I'm going to cut into your donut hour. Um, so, uh, sorry if that disturbs you, but I think it's probably better for your health. But I uh, will cut into that a little bit, so please don't get restless. Secondly, we're going to focus, and more importantly, just on a, a the couple of verses toward the end of this passage. So I won't be dealing with the whole passage. You'll understand that this is part of it has been part of a series that I did with our church. I picked this text to deal with uh, here in this community this morning. And so as we read the text, what I'd ask you to do particularly is pay attention to the flow of the passage and to the logic that is uh, revealed in the passage and just uh, to see where our text falls in that. We're going to be looking particularly at verses 19 to 20, uh, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 10 because I think we need to get the entire context. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic power, powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. 2001, the summer of 2001, the movie We Were Soldiers was released. And it's a story about Colonel Hal Moore as he led his cavalry division into the U.S.'s first engagement in Vietnam. One of the pivotal scenes in that movie, and one of my favorite scenes in that movie, is when the, the actor playing Hal Moore, Mel Gibson, stands in front of his men as they're about to be shipped out to Vietnam, and he delivers a speech which, if I had hair on the back of my neck, would make it stand up. He talks to his troops and he tells them that as a cavalry officer, he will be the first one on the ground and the last one off of the field when the battle is done. He promises them that while he cannot bring them all home alive, he will bring them all home. It's a stirring speech with a veteran warrior identifying the realities of conflict for these young men 
and also showing them the resources and the hope that they have in the battle. Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle Paul, as a veteran warrior in God's kingdom, addresses the church and he tells them about the realities and the resources that they will face in the battle in which they are engaged. In this portion, the apostle Paul tells the Christian that life is war. Being united to Christ, the reality which he's described in the first part of the letter, engages us in a cosmic conflict with the evil one and evil forces in the evil age. So in verse 10, this veteran commander in the cosmic warfare instructs us that our strength must come from the Lord. We stand only in him. He goes on in the following verses to explain that we stand strong in the Lord by putting on the Lord, the divine warrior himself, as his virtues and his character are described as our armor. We stand strong, dressed in Christ himself, by walking in faith as our shield, and by walking according to the word, which is the Spirit's sword. Then you'll notice if you've got your Bible open in verse 18, he shows us that we do all of that that he's just talked about. We stand strong in the Lord by praying, making use of the access to God that we have as those who are in the Spirit, in whom the Spirit dwells, prompted, empowered, directed by the Spirit. For the Christian, life is war. So we must stand strong by putting on God's armor, by praying. Well, this morning, in the time that we have, I'd like us to focus on the two verses toward the end of this passage, verses 19 and 20, where God's spokesman focuses on another theater of conflict. Rather than the Christian life in general, he zeroes in on the Christian ministry. In particular, he focuses on his ministry. And in this context of cosmic conflict, his need for the Lord's strength. You'll notice what he's done if you have your Bible open. In verse 18, he told them to stand praying. And then he focuses that praying by making supplication for all of the saints. And now he adds this in verse 19, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul's ministry was in the front line of cosmic warfare. You'll remember his conversion experience on the road to Damascus when the Lord Jesus appeared to him and told him that his ministry would involve turning the Gentiles from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. If the Christian life is war, Christian ministry, proclaiming Christ, is certainly a frontline duty in the conflict. And this veteran servant knew it. He'd experienced it. He bore the marks of it on his physical body. And so he acknowledges his own need to stand strong in the Lord and asks the church to pray for him. The transforming reality of life in God's kingdom that I'd like you to see from this text, that I'd like you to have on your minds and hearts as you go from this place this morning is this. Ministry is war. So we must pray for God's servants to fulfill their duty. Ministry is war, so we must pray for God's servants to fulfill their duty. 
Now, what I'd like to do, first of all, is look at these words in their original setting, what they meant for the Apostle Paul and to the Ephesians, and then I would like to ask, towards the end, some application, some contemporary application questions. First of all, the original setting. And the first thing I want you to notice as we look at this is that God's servant recognizes his duty. God's servant recognizes his duty. If you look at verse 20, you can see that Paul understands his role in God's kingdom to be that of an ambassador. Now, our news today presents us with regular images of ambassadors, doesn't it? Official delegates for various nations speaking on behalf of their government to the UN. Various episodes of shuttle diplomacy between nations in conflict. We regularly see Ambassador Bolton, don't we, with his very distinctive mustache in front of the cameras. And he's telling us what he's communicating to other nations, Iran or North Korea, behind closed doors and in public. And we assume, when we see him and we hear him, that his message relays not what he thinks is best, but what the president has told him to say. The ambassador is an official delegate designated by the ruler of the realm to declare his message to his subjects, to his friends, and even to his enemies. Well, the word ambassador carried that connotation in the culture to which Paul wrote also. An ambassador was an envoy. He was a representative from one kingdom to another. And if you just flip with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, we see how the apostle Paul understood his ambassadorship as he writes this letter where he defends his apostleship. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, he says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The ruler of the realm which Paul represents is Christ. The king whose message Paul himself carries is Christ. He speaks on God's behalf. Paul, as an ambassador for God's kingdom, designated by Christ to carry his message and speak on God's behalf. Now, if you look back at our text together in verse 19, you'll notice the message for which Christ is an ambassador. What's the message that he carries? The message that he carries, he says, is the mystery of the gospel. And you'll know from your classes here, won't you, that when he talks about the mystery of the gospel, he doesn't mean that the gospel is some secret message that he as an ambassador is trying to smuggle around in his diplomatic pouch from one embassy to another so that others don't see it. Quite the opposite. We won't take the time to read the text this morning, but if you look at Ephesians 1, 8 to 10, and Ephesians chapter 3, 1 to 9, you realize that the mystery of the gospel is Christ, revealed now, where he was not revealed in the past, as the fulfillment of God's purpose and promise in history, both to Gentile and Jew. The message of which Paul was an ambassador was Christ, crucified and risen, as the revelation and realization of God's plan of salvation for all people who have faith in him. That's the mystery of the gospel that he's charged with. He was an official delegated with that message. Is it any wonder then that in that same letter to the 2 Corinthians, Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? 
You see, whatever Ambassador Bolton must say to Russia or China or Iran, as important and as historic as all of that is, and as world-changing as that might be, is it not radically relativized by the gravity and the eternity and the universality of Paul's mandate? His message announces not the plan of the century, but the plan of the ages. His message affects not just world economies, but eternity. And what a duty that is. The king of the cosmos has commissioned him to carry his message to the nations. Well, if you've got your Bible open, what I'd like you to notice now is that Paul recognizes the glory of his king and the gravity of his commission obligate him to clear and courageous proclamation of this message. Verse 19, his concern is that in opening his mouth, he will boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Again, in verse 20, he's concerned to declare it boldly, he says, as he ought to speak. His duty is bold proclamation, bold declaration of the mystery of the gospel. That word translated as boldly was used in the Greek culture to refer to a citizen's freedom of speech, the freedom to be open and straightforward in public speech. And it came to refer to courage, and confidence to speak publicly with fearlessness and frankness. They would have heard Paul's word boldly here to mean unobscured, not muddled by cowardly compromise, clear, courageous proclamation. You see, what he understood was that as Christ's ambassador, his duty was not to spin his message so that it was more palatable or pleasing to his audience. His duty as an official spokesman was not to subtly slide the announcement in the back door. It wasn't to scintillate the crowd with his educated erudition. His charge was to unveil the reality that Christ is Lord. His responsibility was to disclose openly the message of Jesus Christ without fearing for his own popularity, posturing for his own success, or seeking praise as a clever communicator. His ambassadorial duty was to make open declaration about Christ with clarity and courage. Well, proclamation with clarity and courage. Perhaps two of our most cherished examples of this in the post-apostolic times are from Martin Luther and John Knox, in a political and religious climate where fear of suffering, fear of death could have bent them toward manipulating or massaging the message, perhaps even for the sake of maintaining influence, their ministries were marked instead by forthrightness and fearlessness. Listen to what Martin Luther said. I am a preacher. I have to have teeth in my mouth. I have to bite and salt to tell them the truth. Whoever wants to do his duty as a preacher and perform his office faithfully must retain his freedom to tell the truth fearlessly, regardless of other people. He must denounce anyone that needs to be denounced, great or small, rich or poor or powerful, friend or foe. Greed refuses to do this, for it is afraid that if it offends the bigwigs or its good friends, it will be unable to find bread. So greed puts its whistle into its pocket and keeps quiet. John Knox preached in such a way that he offended Queen Mary of Scots. And when she called him before her and threatened revenge, Knox said this, Outside the preaching place, the pulpit, Madam, 
I think I have few have occasion to be offended with me. But there, madam, I'm not master of myself, for I must obey him who commands me to speak and to flatter no flesh upon the face of the earth. When Knox was buried, it was said at his graveside, here lies one who never feared the face of man. See, the duty of God's servant is to proclaim Christ with boldness, with clarity and courage, even when it means that it must be done in chains. In that day, an ambassador, a civic official, might wear a chain around his neck to indicate his official status, something like you might see on the Lord Mayor of London or some other official in the British tradition. But the chains that Christ's ambassador wore were not ornaments of distinction, but shackles of disgrace as a criminal. Paul's open declaration of Christ as Lord was foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to Jews, and it was veiled to those who resisted Christ. So it had caused him no end of suffering. He's now under arrest, making to make his defense possibly to Caesar, probably to Caesar, and he finds himself chained. You see, clear, courageous proclamation of Christ did not result in a limousine ride to the chambers of influence. He's an ambassador in chains. We could say much about Paul's willingness to suffer in dignity and agony for the sake of God's word, but perhaps as much as anything in this context as chains serve to point to his need, his dependence on God for the discharge of his duty. And that's the second observation I'd like us to make from the original setting more briefly. Not only does God's servant recognize his duty, but would you notice that God's servant recognizes his dependence? One commentator wrote of this portion, imprisonment brings its own special temptations to bow to the fear of man. Maybe it was the indignity. Maybe it was the confinement and the loneliness. Maybe it's the possibility of more harm to his already weary body. The prospect of appearing before the emperor himself. But Paul's chains, as he heard them and looked at them, were a vivid picture of his frailty of his inability to fulfill his duty and his own strength. Because that's his concern here, isn't it? That's the whole basis for these couple of verses. Paul's request for supplication, for prayer, for him also. As you pray alertly, he says to the church, perseveringly for strength for all the saints, pray also for me that I may discharge my duty. I don't know about you, but I find this a stunning request. Think about this. Here's a man who has visibly met the risen Jesus on a road and has heard words from Jesus which were so audible and so clear that he could recount them years later in a courtroom setting. Here's a guy, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us, who has had visions of such a nature that the Lord has had to allow Satan to buffet him to keep him humble. He performs miracles. Signs and wonders. He's healed the sick. He's told demons to come out of people, and at least on one occasion, he's raised somebody from the dead. He's smart. He speaks several languages fluently. He can stand in the halls of philosophy in Athens or Jerusalem and cogently and convincingly debate nationally recognized scholars. And so he looks at all of that. He contemplates his duty of clear, courageous proclamation, and he says, I'm good. I've got my education. I've got knowledge. 
I have gifts that most of you can only dream about. My spiritual experience is deep and exceptional. I'll be fine. I can handle what comes next. I'm going to knock this one out of the park. I'm good. It's not what he says, is it? This veteran, gifted, intelligent warrior says, pray for me also. This is the great kingdom ambassador enduring the assault of the kingdom of darkness, and he's practicing what he preaches. He's aware of his own sinful tendencies. He's aware of his own creaturely frailty, and he turns to this church that he planted. He turns to these people that he discipled. He turns to these elders in Ephesus that he trained, and he says, pray for me that I might have courage, that I might have clarity, that the words might be given to me to speak. You see, what's the apostle doing? He's refusing to trust his office, but rather trust the one who appointed him to that office. He's refusing to depend upon his knowledge, but is depending upon the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's not going to lean on his past experiences of spiritual power. He's going to lean on the Spirit. This is a request, is an expression of a dependence upon the Spirit of God. What did he write to the church in Corinth in the first letter? And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Charles Spurgeon had occasion to address his students for ministry on the topic of the Holy Spirit in connection with our ministry, and he wrote this. We do not stand in our pulpits to display our skill in spiritual swordplay, but we come to actual fighting. Our object is to drive the sword of the Spirit through men's hearts. Our ends can never be gained if we miss the cooperation of the Spirit of the Lord. We depend entirely upon the Spirit of God to produce actual effect from the gospel, and at this effect we must always aim. The lack of distinctly recognizing the power of the Holy Ghost lies at the root of many useless ministries. God's servant is dependent on God's Spirit in His presence and power in order to gain His message and in order to give His message with clarity and courage. So, from the original setting, we see that God's servant recognizes His duty And we see that God's servant recognizes his dependence. But what do we do with this? Here in this world in which we live now. Allow me to make a couple of contemporary applications very briefly and then I'm through. First, the application which I think emerges right from the text. You must pray for the servants of God's word. We must pray for the servants of God's word. Every stage of church history has faced pastors and evangelists with threats and temptations to cloud and to compromise their message. And this age of post-everything pluralism might be more sophisticated and it might be more subtle, but it is every bit as profound a challenge as any age which has come before it. The reigning philosophies of our day are converging for the gagging of God, as D.A. Carson has called it. 
Clarity has to make way for nuance. Courage can't coexist with the anti-dogmatic spirit of our age. So today, as much as at any time, for God's message to be heard and the kingdom to be manifest, the kingdom needs servants who declare God's word with frankness and with fearlessness. So pray for the servants of the word in our age. Pray for pastors. Pray for the teachers. Pray for evangelists. Pray for missionaries who are very much earthen vessels. Let's not think that because they've been provided with a seminary education or because we've given to that fund or this fund that we've done all that really matters. Pray for the enablement of the pastors you know. Pray for the enablement, the Spirit's power, and the missionaries that you know. Secondly, depend on God for clarity and courage in your own proclamation of the gospel. Depend on God for clarity and courage in your own proclamation of the gospel. Many of you will go out of here to be ministers of the word, but whether you go out to be a minister of the word or not, all of us as God's people are called to proclaim Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians, the letter that he had in one hand as he was writing Ephesians, so to speak, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person. See, the mystery of the gospel is declared not only by pastors and teachers and evangelists, but by all of God's people as they give an answer for the hope that is within them and the rhythms and the relationships of life. We are each called and responsible to proclaim Christ with our lives and with our lips to our family, to our neighbors, to our community. But we're tempted to keep silent, aren't we? We're tempted to gloss the hard bits through fear because we value friendship more than faithfulness and perhaps because at times we're genuinely unclear and we genuinely doubt things. But our ministry. Our calling is to live and to do and to speak the gospel so that the world in which God has placed us can see Christ. And that will only occur as God powerfully works in us by his spirit. So not only must we pray for God's servants as they depend on God, we must depend on God for clarity and courage in our proclamation as the people of God. Ministry is war, so we must pray for God's servants to fulfill their duty. Let me dismiss us with prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your love that as our covenant God, you've not left us to wander in the dark, but you have spoken to us in your son Jesus and in the record of his life and work and your work throughout history that you've given to us in your word. We thank you that that word is the sword of the spirit and that through it you expose the strongholds in our minds and hearts, the unbelief, the fear, the disobedience. But we thank you that it's also through that word of grace that you equip us and restore us and build us up for life in covenant with you 
and in the world in which you've placed us. And so I pray, Father, for us as your people, for my brothers and sisters here, that you would make us more faithful to pray for the servants of the word, but we pray also that you'd make us more dependent, as many of us will go from this place one day to be servants of the word. Make us clear, courageous, compassionate servants of the word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.